0: Sea Wind, the name in the L.A. music scene, is legendary. Maybe it was the smooth jazz sound in the 70s that captivated people. Maybe it was the monster musicians who were playing in the band. Maybe it was the lead singer's sultry and sexy vocals. And just maybe it was all about timing. But Sea Wind made its presence known, starting with a gig at the famous Baked Potato in L.A., in front of some of the most heavy-hitting people in the music biz. And that was the beginning of the Sea Wind Sound that eventually took the L.A. music scene by storm. When Bob Wilson connected with Larry Williams, Jerry Hay, and Kim Hutchcroft, and a few other musicians, he never realized that today the Sea Wind Sound would be alive and well. On this episode of Inside Music Cast, we chat with Bob Wilson, founder of the group that today needs no introduction to music aficionados. Hey,
1: Bob, thanks for joining us today.
2: Uh, it's my honor. Thank you guys for having me.
1: Yeah, Bob, welcome. Hey, you know, we often get times to talk with musicians that have uh, made great contributions or influenced music in a, a very special way. and and uh, if you look at our guest list, even our audiences can sort of agree that that this is true. But whenever you know we somebody posts something on Inside MusicCast Facebook threads or something, and it has to do with Sea Wind, everybody just it just explodes. It's just <laughs> yeah. er, everybody joins <laughs> in because you've touched a nerve. And yeah. and my question to you is uh, very simply: you know, does it surprise you that when you mention Sea Wind, how much attention it still gets after all these years?
2: Uh, it's it's extremely surprising to me. Uh, like you say, it's been so many years ago since there's been an active album or anything out there. And it just shows that, uh, you know, we've got a fan base that still likes what we did. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's very gratifying and humbling at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: well, uh, The Life of Seawind, you know, it lasted from the mid 70s to around 82. And that's when the band sort of uh, broke up. But to understand things a little bit better, um, you know, we need to dig in a little bit as to why and how sea wind sort of came to be. So, um, you know, me and Rick were talking, of course, because we live here in Indianapolis, which is freezing right now, uh, <laughs> and being Indiana yeah. guys, we are so, so happy to announce that, uh, you know, there probably would have been no sea wind if it wasn't for Indiana University. Can you can you, can you <laughs> expound on that a little bit?
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's the absolute truth. Uh The IU guys were a major um, role in in having seawind, what it turned out to be. Mm -hmm. Um, I was stationed in the Navy at Pearl Harbor, and um, this would have been uh, 1967, 68. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was playing in a rehearsal band. It was a combo military and uh, University of Hawaii big band. Mm -hmm. And the bass player was Kenny Wilde. He was 16 at the time, so we were playing around together, and uh, um, I got out of the Navy in South Carolina. I was transferred, then went back to my hometown of Glendale, Arizona, and nothing was happening in the Phoenix area. So I called Kenny back, and I said, anything going on in Hawaii worth me coming back for? He said, oh, there's a bunch of players from uh, Indiana University. You've got to come back. (laughs) So I did. And uh, after getting there, um, Kenny called me up and said, hey, we're going to have a, a a time to play a jam session with some of the guys I've been playing with. And uh, we met at the Outrigger Hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and he said, yeah, the guy that's going to be playing keyboard today is really a saxophone player. His name is Larry Williams.
3: Uh-huh.
2: And I was thinking to myself, oh, boy, this is not going to be fun to be at. I just... <laughs> Hopefully it'll be okay. We'll get through it. And so uh, it was uh Larry Williams, Kenny, uh on bass and I believe Larry Hall and Kim Hutchcroft. Uh mm-hmm. Jerry wasn't there that day. Okay. And so Larry started to or Larry Hall, I mean Williams said, why don't we play uh footprints by Miles Davis? I went, Wow. I was expecting <laughs> keeper for two or something in you know, a one with samba. and I went, Wow, okay. And when he started to play piano art, oh my gosh, if if this is his secondary instrument, uh, I'm afraid (laughs) to hear his primary instrument. So that was the start of of a great uh, musical collaboration. We would get together and play an awful lot.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Larry got called to go to the Big Island of Hawaii in Kona to arrange and be the MD for an artist over there. And after about a month, he called me over, uh, to be part of the start helping out with putting the band together. And after a while, all of the players that we had, Kenny, um, it was, uh, Larry Hall, Kim Hutchcroft, Mm -hmm. and Jerry all came over and we were the backup band.
3: Um, Wow.
2: And, while we were over there, Larry had told us, when I first got over to Kona, he said, you got to come hear this girl singer. She's incredible. So we went down to the club, and that's where we, uh, I heard Pauline uh, for the first time. Mm-hmm. I said, man, she can sing. And so we brought her into this guy's show to do special numbers, and we would arrange different songs for her. And then after that gig ended, we went back to Honolulu and we said, well, let's just form a little band, you know? uh, We just looked at it, kind of a a trio plus Pauline, we'll try to get a gig somewhere. (laughs) And the horn guy said, well, wait, wait, you're not doing anything without us. (laughs) And so we said, okay, Uh, and I went to a friend of mine who is an agent, and I said, we wanna try to get some work in town, can you help us out, get some bookings? And he said, well, what's the name of the band? And we wanted to be called miscellaneous music. Uh, and he said, There's no way. Way too long for print. You've got to get a short name.
3: <laughs> and uh,
2: so Larry Williams and I were driving around. We didn't care about names. We just wanted to play music and make enough money to, to keep living in Hawaii. Right. And we were in his um, 1959 Black Jag, uh, I mean, MG. And we drove past the zoo. And I said, What about zoo? for a name. And he goes, yeah, but Ox is shorter. And I said, Ox, that's it. <laughs> so we went back to my friend, uh, the agent said, uh, the band name is Ox. And they said, wow, okay. So we started getting little gigs. We we ended up uh, opening up for uh, Tower of Power, uh, Blazedale Arena, uh,
3: uh,
2: you know, Lydia Pence, Cold Blood. And then basically we ran out of places to play and so they said, "Well, we can get you some um, uh, gigs in a, in dance clubs on the mainland." Mm. And uh, so we went over there and started to do that. And, uh, and and the funny thing is, us instrumentalists, we we were doing six power songs in a row, vocal songs. And we, we'd blow Pauline's voice out in
3: these <laughs> dance clubs.
2: So we were scrambling. What yeah. what can we do? And uh-huh. even Jerry Hay sang um, Zappa's uh, I'm a Little Pimp, Willie the <laughs> Pimp. Uh, that would be the first set that that's ever been, I think, reported to anybody. But he used to sing it. a <laughs> little pimp with my head.
1: On that's there. amazing.
2: And we got through that. And then... Uh, after the stint, um, went back to uh, Hawaii after we played quite a few gigs on the mainland.
3: Uh-huh.
2: And that was, a, that was the start of, of the whole thing of, uh, of Ox. And um, we're playing in a little club, and Bob Wirtz, who was Harvey Mason's uh, partner, production partner, yeah. uh, came and heard us in a club. I said, hey, I just found this band. We've got to try to get them over to the mainland. And uh, that started the process of us doing a route move to L.A.
0: I was just curious. You were talking about Jerry Hay and singing that Zappa tune. Did you, did you guys ever record that stuff? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I, don't,
2: I, I, I wish, boy, I wish we did. <laughs> I, I'd make some good money, I think.
0: Yeah. <laughs> talking about L.A., though, you guys became the, the talk in the music scene pretty quickly in L.A. I mean, you even had Tommy LaPuma and George Duke producing your albums. And tell us what that was like, you know, getting those guys involved in that that whole situation there when you got to L.A.
2: Well, it was great. Uh, We talked when we were still in Hawaii. uh, Harvey got us on the phone and he said, I can guarantee you one night at the Baked Potato um, in L.A. And so we just like, okay, we're going over there. And he had everybody filled it. Tom Scott, Dave Goosen wow. they were people that we just went, these are idols of <laughs> ours, <bars, laughs> yeah, you know. We them. musical yeah, idols. Yeah. And um so we played there and then and then got uh, our CTI deal. Yeah. Uh and and thought, man, this is gonna be easy. In fact, this is a great uh equalizing story. Our first road gig that I can remember after the uh, first album came out, we were at the Bijou Cafe in Philly, Mm -hmm. and when we walked in, we had no idea. Anybody going to know who we are, anything? We walked in, and it's kind of a three-story building, and all the seats looked down on the stage, and it was packed. We -hmm. couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We started playing. uh, I think our first song was We Got Away, and the people in the audience knew every lyric. They knew every horn uh, line. And we said, this is going to be easy. Man, we've, we're hits already. Our next job was Blues Alley in D.C., and and the owner hated us because we had electronics. Uh, we followed in uh, McCoy Tyner, And uh, that quick, we realized, oh, you know, it, we're not that big of a deal, so uh, <laughs> it was a great equalizer. But to come that far and get enough people to say, uh, man, we'd like to produce you guys, uh, Tommy LaPuma, that was an awesome thing, and, of course, George Duke. And uh, mm-hmm. it was just, it's awesome how many people uh, that we got to work with. Yeah. And, of course, everybody's individual careers went uh through the roof at that point. Oh, yeah. It was the right time to be in L.A. Yeah, yeah. Right.
0: absolutely.
1: You know, talking about Pauline a little bit, uh, you know, when you guys first crossed paths with her and, you know, you noticed her voice and she she hopped on, you know, what was her training prior to that? Was she just uh, uh, a beautiful girl in Hawaii that just had some vocal chops and just self-trained, that type of thing, or was she formally trained?
2: No, no, just self-trained. Wow. I mean, that just had the God-given gift of I open my mouth and i can sing <laughs> yeah. and, and and she could, and uh it was great I mean she was doing like cover songs you know of uh whatever year that was mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and uh and that was it she was just a uh, she was a singer in a cover band in a little club, yeah, but uh, she could sing and
1: and had a great
2: you know the whole thing about the uh, forming the band in Hawaii. It really was a family, and there was this innocence. We didn't know that we couldn't do some things. Uh, and because we're in Hawaii, <laughs> we'd listen to records all yeah. the time go, wow, oh, that's great. And when I started writing, it was like, well, there's, we weren't thinking pop music. We weren't thinking anything. So Pauline especially got stretched vocally because I would write something and then say, I gotta have you sing this lyric very fast, and it's high. And she would just she would nail it. So yeah, it was great.
1: Now there were really four Sea Wind albums, right? I mean, as Sea Wind, I mean there were the first two on CTI, and then of course the the next one on Horizon and A and M. Those are the those were the real albums, uh, not including the 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 other um, albums that were on top of that, right?
2: Right. We we had finished um, after the George Duke album. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which was just I think entitled Sea Wind. Sea Wind, yeah. Um, yeah, we started. Uh, we we went from Horizon, which was a subsidiary of A and M. Tommy Loom, uh, La Puma's, uh was the head of that label. Went to A and M proper, and uh, so we started on the on that project, that album, and at that time it, it got so. This is the other thing; it was kind of uh, eye opening. As a songwriter, going from, "Man, there's nothing. We can just write whatever we want. Mm-hmm. You know I mean just it's just if there's 10 minute songs, there's 10 minute songs." But then the record company was saying, "Well, you had a hit in what you doing on the George Duke. Mm-hmm. We need you to write that same song sideways." And I would say, I, c- "I can't do that, but why would I want to do that? Well, we want it that way. And it was a big fight of uh because the band people didn't know whether we were black or white <laughs> band because
3: yeah.
2: uh it was funky enough that we had uh, the R and B side of A and M say this should be the single and then the pop people saying this should be the single. And um and so in the middle of this last record uh that was unreleased, we had recorded all these tracks and then AM said, You know what? we're going to drop it. We're not going to do the album. And we went, what? What? (laughs) We're, we're almost to the mixing stage. We've Mm -hmm. recorded all these tracks, but it just, it didn't have the, um, the writing sideways of what you're doing on there, but we wanted to progress. So yeah, that was the unreleased album. Mm -hmm. And we put some of those tracks on a, um, kind of a remember album on noteworthy.
0: Mm. Yeah. Hey guys, let's take a break and uh, let's check out a track from uh, the 2009 Sea Wind Reunion album. And this is a track called Follow Your Road. From today's guest, Bob Wilson on Inside Music Cast.
4: Wonder which road will be The right one for me Others may fall away Dead ending left and right But there is this one road That journey's far out of sight Have you wondered where your road will lead to a bright day of sunshine or a starry night in heaven or it might be you're afraid to go afraid to go but you've got to follow your road or you'll
0: You know, as a composer you wrote you know you wrote a lot of the band's music, but it was you know it was a, also a collective effort process for for you and the players um, but, but who were the players that who were contributing compositionally and arranging at the time
2: i uh, it primarily was um uh, Larry Williams and Jerry okay. and um we would you know I would bring stuff in I was just writing all the time. That, that's my passion. I love it. I still do it. And uh, I would bring a song in and and I would, because I played saxophone for 12 years through high school, uh, I was just very horn heavy. Yeah. You know, that's the side of stuff I wanted mm-hmm. to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would bring in horn parts. I'd bring in all of that. And, and those guys, I just learned so much from those guys. They're, yeah. they, this is before they even hit their big strides yeah. uh they're going but the talent was way there and they would say oh this is good but i think you meant to do this mm. and then i go wow yeah <laughs> that's what i want there mm-hmm. so it was a very collaborative uh thing we would we would be uh in whatever i see wind band houses uh whether it was back in um, hawaii with ox or in la And I would bring material in, and we would just play. We we would Mm -hmm. just go over the song, And then Larry Williams would bring in songs. Uh, He was the other uh, primary composer um, of the group. And we just had fun writing. And there wasn't any kind of boundary to what we uh, had to do.
0: Well, extending on that same question, tell me a little bit about your your own personal writing process and how you would develop the structure of songs. And, and I was curious, you know, you being a drummer, did you also? Uh, I'm I'm assuming you probably play other instruments as well. I was curious if you created melodies on piano, guitar, harmonica. How how do you come up with melodies and how did you write? Yeah,
2: yeah. I was, uh, you know, my family was a very musical family. We had a piano, and I mean, from the earliest age, uh, I would sit and play the piano and just write little melodies and stuff when mm-hmm, I was in mm-hmm. grade school. And like I said, I, I started playing saxophone my third uh, uh, in third grade and played that through my senior year in high school. And it wasn't until my freshman year uh, in high school that I took up drums. So I always would sit down and just write in sit down and play chords that I like. And then I would write melodies over those and and uh, go from there. And that's primarily my structure. I will sit down, and most of the time I'll hear uh, chord changes yeah. that I think, oh, I like this. And sometimes there will be a melody first. But mostly I'll sit down and I hear chord changes. I'll write that down and go, oh, I'm, I'm just getting inspired for this melody to go here. And it sounds like a chorus, or it may be a verse, and, and go from there. Right. Uh, very rarely would I sit down and have a lyric first. Kind of the the chord changes in melody that I was hearing would inspire the lyric.
1: Right, exactly.
2: So that was my structure.
1: Well, neat. And I can just imagine how that would feed into the process when you have Larry and Jerry who are, gee, is just amazing Horn uh, or uh, arrangers uh, in their in their own right, even today, um, how that sort of poured into them, and by the time you know it, you you saw what you had probably um, st- you know started as a composition as a foundation, and they take it some somewhere to a, a whole new level. Is that what happened?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I used to do so. I used to bring so much writing in. Uh, I mean, songs in and a lot of times i would write the horn parts out and again they would embellish them right. and and even if they didn't what their their phrasing and their mm-hmm. musical punctuation brought what i wrote to life yeah, I so it, it it would just went further and further but uh after that i said you know what I'm, you guys are the geniuses this. i'm going to write the the basic song you put horns to it yeah and and uh, at that time, because then we were traveling a lot, and there wasn't a lot of time for me to write. And when I did have time, I didn't, you know, I got the best foreign players and arrangers in the world as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so I them do it, and, and that just brought the whole level of uh our presentation
1: up yeah well you know the the sea Wind horn section is so it, it's infamous and in what you guys did and you know when you got them all together um you know it's one of the most prominent horn sections in the business since to this day and yeah you know it stacks yep. up with you know tower of power memphis horns and you know just others and you know they often were you know hired you know as, as groups for other sessions and other artists and um uh, you know, you were also involved in a lot of session work yourself. So we're sort of curious if if the horn section gigs, you know, became an opportunity for you and other band members of C1 to be involved in, in, in those, those type of sessions, you know?
2: Yeah. They, I mean, uh, I, I forget what year it was, maybe 79 when Jerry left the band and that was a hard thing, but we realized while he was out on the road, he did, uh, uh, Quincy, he hooked up with Quincy and did uh, Off the Wall. He was writing horn charts while we were out on tour. Yeah. And we were listening to the tracks and going, man, this is gonna be huge. It's, and they, we had a break and they flew back to LA to record uh, horns on a, a couple songs on Off the Wall. And then you knew, boy, this is, this is so great. This is, uh, Jerry's just gonna be catapulted. Everybody was working and doing sessions. Um and it it was just uh, life was full, it was really good, right. so being in l a and and see when did it, we got the recognition as a band, but then individuals started to be called out and and doing sessions outside of the band, which was um a lot of fun mm-hmm. and it was it was a great time
0: i've always really loved your style of playing, and it made me curious about. Other drummers that you learn from, I mean either directly or, or just by listening to records
2: oh, I listen that was my whole thing when i i'm a self taught drummer um, when i I kept bugging my uh, grade school music teacher, I said, "I want to play drums he said you're not a drummer and uh, but he was, so he sold my parents his old drum set, oh. and for eight hours a day, I would just listen to drummers and I would listen to them on the hi-fi, and i go, okay, they're playing kind of a triplet. I didn't know the sticking. I made mine own up. Right. But I became <laughs> a, a real studier and uh, just had an appreciation for drummers and their different styles. I, I remember first hearing um, um, El- Alvin Jones on Impressions and going, how is he sounding like this? And mm-hmm. I recorded it yeah. into an old wall, sack and s- slowed it down, and I could hear where his right-hand placement was uh, against his hi hat and his left hand. So from that time on, I just devoured uh, any records I could, saying, these are the style, these are the guys that, man, I want to learn from. I mean, there was Harvey Mason, uh, you know, from... Uh, Steve Gadd, oh my gosh, uh, Steve Jordan. I just listen to everybody and still do. I have such an appreciation for uh, the gift Uh of drumming. And uh, I'm drawn to musical drummers, uh, not so much technical. I like both. If they have a combination, that's great. But uh, I listen to everybody. And there's some incredible new young drummers. It's
0: amazing. Well, who, tell me a couple that you're interested in. Uh, are there any particular that yeah. you really like or enjoy? Uh,
2: um, Mark uh, Guglielmo, uh, he's uh, out of New York, and he's just got a whole, it's kind of a linear style uh-huh. of drumming. Uh, just really great. Eric Har- uh, Harlan is another guy. Uh, Chris Coleman, Keith Carlock. Oh,
3: yeah. Um, uh,
2: man, I'm just, there's <laughs> there's so many. uh Oh, Matt Garska. And I like different styles. He's the drummer in um oh boy. Leaders. Uh to get the kind of a rock uh band, but he's incredible. Huh. Um, yeah, he's at Matt Garska. And uh there's just everybody I get and, and this young kid, Lewis Cole, he's in a, a duo named uh Knorr. okay And he's like this young kid that plays keyboards. Does in uh, great uh, writing, videoing, and uh, and plays like drum and bass style stuff. It's freaky. I, I mean, I look at, it, I go, I don't know how you're doing that. So wow, interesting. It's awesome. It's just the joy of listening to the gift. Yeah. You know, that's what's so great
0: is uh Matt Gartska He's he's in uh is it, he's in a band called Animals and Leader uh, Animals Matt, as and Leaders. And
2: I knew it was a Leader. Yeah, yeah. Animals for Leaders.
0: Yeah. yeah, okay.
2: And he's he's great. Uh, not, uh i mean mike mangini mm-hmm. uh he's another there's uh there's more than i can i'm old <laughs> so my brain i forget <laughs> half of them so. <laughs> but that's the great thing about yeah. uh going on youtube and going right. oh my gosh look yeah, at this guy
0: exactly. there's some phenomenal uh, talent out there yeah <laughs>
2: yeah there is there
0: is. Well, you know, you've performed with some incredible musicians over the year, and I'm I'm going to throw out a few names. And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about your experiences working with these artists and if you might have, you know, any interesting stories from sessions you, you might like to share. And the first one I'll throw out is Herbie Hancock.
2: Uh, Herbie, well, the only time I, I played with him was um, mm-hmm. he would actually sat in with a band in Hawaii, Okay, uh, but knew his music, you know incredibly well mm-hmm. and everything. And in fact, in my job now, uh, I, I work at a company called Spectrasonics, which mm-hmm. is a music software company. Sure. Right. And I've had more dealings with Herbie and, and uh, setting up stuff um, for him. I mean, the, the owner has Eric Persing, but we see him a lot. And just the, the, the gift. I mean, this guy, as old as he is, mm-hmm. and he's still playing incredibly well. Oh. It's just fantastic. Uh, just listening to him and uh, how he's played his composition. He's a master, that's yeah. for sure.
0: What about Quincy Jones? That's another name that you've you've been associated with.
2: Yeah, uh, Quincy is. Uh, of course, that Harvey had a meeting with Quincy when uh, we were doing the first album. Mm-hmm. And he tape-recorded. Uh, he played... We did some demos at the the record plant at 3 in the morning, I think. It was downtime. And those demos, one of them was He Loves You. I forget yeah. the other one. Uh, oh, I, I think... Yeah, uh, The Devil is a Liar. We did three of them. Uh-huh. And we got away. And so he played those for Quincy. And uh, Quincy was very supportive. And uh, and Harvey's thing was tell us what the business is like. What do we need to do? And it was just great hearing Quincy's um, comments on, well, here's what the band needs to do. And he just had story after story. And of course, when Jerry started working with Quincy, um, it was just, I didn't hang with him that much. You know, it was all the horns that that did all the work with Quincy. But you got to see... uh, uh, at Jerry's birthday parties, Quincy would show up and talk, yeah. and he was just the nicest person ever. Uh, never a, an ego to say, you know, I am king of the road. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. And very approachable. Uh-huh. Uh, what a great man.
0: Very cool. And then I you know, also noticed that you uh, worked with Henry Mancini, which that had to be a neat experience.
2: Oh, man. the Henry Mancini, uh, that story is... I was a freshman in, uh in college at mm-hmm. the Arizona State and they were doing the Symphony Orchestra Pops Concert uh-huh. series and he was a part of and I got the call and it was my first time of playing with a um, 60-piece orchestra I was going this is incredible yeah. and I was on an eight-foot high riser kinda of thing mm-hmm. um, all wood and then in front of that riser down on the floor was a grand piano and then out in front of that henry mancini was conducting well we Uh we played through the the whole concert and we're on our third um encore and it was peter gunn and uh i noticed that my bass drum was starting to slide forward (laughs) and i'm well i'm i'm okay i'm all right and then all of a sudden as we keep playing that one spur goes off
3: oh, the head no. of oh, no.
2: this eight-foot-tall riser. And I'm going, oh, my gosh. And I'm, you know, I'm 19 years old, and I'm going, this better not turn out bad. Well, it did. <laughs> uh, oh, no. the, other, the other spur went off, and there was a, there's like a two-bar drum break at this one point <laughs> In, uh, in the song, and I was actually holding my kick drum on uh, oh my gosh. with my foot. Now, this is in the day where you had a rack tom, then you have all of your sticks and extra sticks and brushes just laying on the, the bass drum, yeah. and your cymbal was attached to the bass drum, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I played this. I am playing the two-bar feel with my hands, and the last thing I do is pick my foot up to hit the crash cymbal and the kick at the same time, and my whole bass drum goes eight foot down, uh, makes a fall, and crashes in between my uh, platform and the grand piano. And here man see conducting, and he doesn't... He keeps conducting, and he just bends down and looks underneath the piano. Now, here I am... I need to change pants because I know that
3: my career is over. <laughs> uh,
2: I am freaking out. I'm skinny. My leg is shaking where the bass drum is. I have a hi hat, a snare, and a crash cymbal uh-huh. uh, to finish the, about 16 bars out of the song. So I get through with that. And of course, it brought the house down. There's 3,000 people packed. And the next day, you know, young Bobby Wilson, a uh, local uh, drummer, uh, Stops the show at the uh, <laughs> and I went and I I said Mr. Mancini I'm so sorry he goes that is great and he signed an autograph.
3: Oh now, my God!
2: The other part of this story is that's that was in uh, probably '66. Now go to 1973, 74. We're OX. We're living in Hawaii and Henry Mancini's coming through to do the same thing with the Honolulu Center. (laughs) Okay. And the IU guys, uh, Larry and Jerry, knew some of the players. I guess he had some IU players in there. And they said, let's go down and just see them. So we went down, and they were on a break uh, from rehearsal uh, at the, um, uh, I can't remember the the place. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Uh, And I said, I got to go up. And I go up, and I say, Mr. Mancini, I don't know if you remember this, but a few years back in Phoenix, and he stopped me and he said, you're him. <laughs> and I go, you're the kid with the bass drum that fell off. And I said, I am. And he said, I've told this story all over the world, everywhere it's going. It, it, that's never happened to me before. <laughs> so that was the, uh, the front and the back side of that
1: story. <laughs> oh, gee whiz. Hey, hey well, um, I, I want to sort of jump uh, ahead a little bit, and it almost coattails on what you're saying because, uh, it, you know, you're talking about launches you into the front. Well, maybe that might be wh- – that's the reason why you called the next band that you were – uh, a part of the front. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, let's jump ahead just a little bit because I, I want to uh, let people know, of course, they're probably aware, our listeners, that that uh, you've been involved in, in sort of um, – Quasi, uh, Christian projects along the way and, and, uh, non-Christian, but it's just music all the same. But the front was a little different. When you got together with Tommy Funderburk in the mid-80s, um, you know, tell us a little bit about your meeting with Tommy and, and how the actual band, the front, came to be. Because you had some heavy hitters playing, uh, on this one band, uh, in one of this band actually, uh, the first recording that you guys actually recorded.
2: That's right. Uh, and this, all, this meeting with Tommy uh, came about because that unreleased album that we had all those tracks, mm-hmm. at that same time when that happened, uh, Pauline left. So there was a band. We were instrumentalists now. And we had taken a $50,000 loan out to finish the album. And no one wanted to pick it up. First, Warner Brothers said, hey, we do. Then they did so we just were working, and we said, "Well, what if we try to to get somebody to sing on the tracks that we did, though Pauline singing?" And Jerry was the one. He said, uh, "You know, Tommy Thunderberg, you you got to get this guy's range is ridiculous." Mm-hmm. So I called him up and I said, "Listen, we got these tracks." and just want to know if you could come down. And we're seeing if we can revitalize a career with a male singer now, you know. See when the male bonding. So um, he comes down, and uh, there was a song called uh, Heaven in Your Eyes, and it was high for Pauline. And so he starts singing, and this guy had a four-octave range, and there's no break. When he goes from... Uh, into his falsetto you don 't hear a break it 's power all the way, huh. and I went, Oh my gosh, yeah, so there were three songs we put him on, and then said, You know rather than do <laughs> the rest than Pauline, uh, Tommy and I started writing together, and it was out of that, uh, and me being uh, a believer and uh, as well as he, uh, we started writing things, and he was coming up with lyrics that we said, you know this is meant for. A different project
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, not Sea Wind and and on a point Sea uh, Wind kind of we decided to really dissolve it because mm-hmm. everybody was going different directions right. and we said you know let's just take a break and that was it so uh, Tommy and I would write and we wrote so many songs and said all right let's try to get something going and he had some contacts with uh, a record company I think Refuge Records was the name of it. Yeah,
3: uh-huh.
2: and and they uh, they said, man, we'd love to do a record. So uh, we just called in. I remember it was Dan Huff. Uh, they gave us a budget, and Dan was still living in L.A. at the time. Uh-huh. And I brought Larry in. I played some of the keyboard parts that only had to be very simple. Right. But brought Larry into it, and uh, we made the record, and. We did uh, touring uh, over in Sweden, Norway, I think, and and some in L.A. I don't think we got out of L.A. Maybe San Diego, but we were real happy. I mean, there was no budget uh, Christian <laughs> record budgets at the time. With uh, do we have to pay for it, or can you? <laughs> and so uh, you know, we'd say, "Well, we'll pull all the favors we can," but uh, but it, it was a great thing, and. um And it was short-lived, but then that led us into, uh, Tommy and I kept writing, and uh, that led into the group of What If and what we were doing there.
0: Yeah. Well, guys, I want to go way back to 1980, and let's play a track from the self-titled Sea Wind release, and this is a track called The Devil is a Liar.
4: Something tempting for you I can give you All of the world With buildings that reach out To the sky I'm watching you now You can take what you want Would you rather have Than have now Don't be a fool Cause I can give you All your desires Precious diamonds and rubies Found so ray. Just sign your name Upon the line And give me your soul If you dare But don't you believe You'll be deceived He's a liar. Ain't you believe? You're see?
1: And Inside Music Cast is Mikael Ingstrom. Uh, obviously, he's in Sweden, and he, and he has a question that he wanted to ask is uh, you know, when you mentioned that you were touring in in, in Sweden, uh, the Nordic uh, tour, um, you know, what were your experiences in terms of the audience's reactions and appreciation? What Was there anything different about playing up there in, in that uh, part of the world?
2: Well, there was. The great thing when we were over there, uh, the radio was totally different. Uh, you would have, for ba- lack of uh, better terms, um, uh, you'd have secular music played with Christian music. There wasn't a Christian station, mm-hmm. secular station. Yeah. all music was being played uh, from each station. You know, it was just there wasn't any separation. And um, I think our biggest, I think people liked us. Where where it was uh, not good is when. We were booked into dance clubs. Now, our, our music wasn't dance-oriented. Yeah. <laughs> and what it would be, there would be DJs playing dance, and then we'd be a special guest. And I will never forget this. Gotcha. Um, the dance floor is packed. And, and normally, they would have a live band then take over, and people would dance to that. So we're trying to do our heaviest Dance music with the Christian theme here, which wasn't dance oriented at all. And all of a sudden, the dance floor would just clear out. It would just clear out. And I remember at one point, as it's getting thinner and thinner, uh, Tommy turns around to me and says, I think we got them. I went, We don't got them. We don't got them. They're all leaving. (laughs) <laughs> but uh that was in the dance clubs, but we got a, a great response in other concerts and yeah. what a great place. I wish that Sea Wind would have been able to go and play there. Yeah. Uh because uh, the people were very appreciative of uh yeah of music.
0: Right. The front, they never really disbanded, did they?
2: Well it uh yeah, that that was just a the front was Tommy and me yeah, and we took different people out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was so short lived because the wreck, well, this is what it was. We came back from Sweden and we were in uh, London and we were supposed to fly back. But this was the, the record company said, we will have your round trip ticket or your ticket home in the mail or, you know, we'll get it. Well, uh-huh. we got there and there was no ticket <laughs> and we went. Wait a minute. Yeah. A and I, I mean, I'm usually a very just uh, kind of a loose, okay, roll with it guy. I was screaming at this guy oh, at, no. in midnight from oh, a no. London hotel going, mm-hmm. if I don't have a ticket for our band guys, for all us to get back, I'm, I'm going to sue you for everything uh, that you have because oh you have dropped the ball. And this is this is the way he operated business. I mean, he went out of business yeah. quickly, but yeah. um so it was one of those things you kind of go, I think we're done with this, and uh, <laughs> but we had these other things going, and that's where What If uh, came into being.
0: Well, that's my next question, and I wanted to ask if you would, you know, would explain how and why the name the name change to What If was was more strategic as RCA uh, tried to take the front into a more mainstream or secular market, like like a Mister Mister or Starship.
2: Right. No, they they didn't even know about the front. Uh, how that relationship came yeah. again. It was with Tommy Funderburk because he was doing a lot of vocals for starship, right. Uh, uh behind the scenes uh-huh. leads and, 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 uh, just vocal background. Mm-hmm. Sure. And we had written all these songs and actually went in and cut some demos. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we brought Larry Williams in and, and they were definitely more pop oriented kind of things. And, um, and she worked, Sarchik was on RCA. So um, her first name was Terry. And she went and said, hey, I think they're interested. And we went, great. And the president of the company liked what he heard. So we got funded. And, and the the name What If came from a song that uh, Tommy and I wrote. He wrote What, what If, This, That, That, The Other. Right. Mm-hmm. And they, they said, this would be a great band name. So we did the album, uh, and we got called to open up for Heart on the East Coast. And we went, oh, Wow, this is amazing. We had done yeah. a couple videos, and Heart was just huge at the time. Sure, right. And they'd heard uh, some tracks. We had some friends that were in the band of Heart in L.A. and uh, from L.A., and Hart said, yeah, we're going to do our first tour, uh, leg of the tours on the East Coast. And so we were going, yes. And we, we went to, the, uh, to RCA, which just changed presidents. Now, the new president that came in hated us. <laughs> he didn't sign us. And he said, no, there's not going to be any tour support, and I don't care if they're opening for Hart. And we go, What? this is heart. You can't get any bigger than this. Right, right. This would, uh, we don't even have the, the album, uh, really pressed and done yet, uh, to, to be able to ship out. And so at that point, uh, realizing, well, the record company's not into us. <laughs> uh, that was another, uh, blow and you couldn't get any better opportunity than to open up for heart on the East coast. And mm-hmm. if it went well, we would continue to open up for them around the country. Yeah. So that was the short lived we had you know, it was about the same amount of time, the front mm-hmm. and and what if.
3: Uh-huh.
2: And I could blame that on Tommy Funderburg maybe. He was in both <laughs> bands and they only lasted <laughs> <about> like a
3: year. <laughs>
0: We have another uh, question from uh, another correspondent that happens to be over in Konstanz, Germany, and his name is Uwe Reith. And Uwe asks – or his comment was, he said, I remember the What If release being postponed by RCA again and again. And he asks, what were the reasons for that?
2: Well, uh, and this was a – yeah, this was the other thing that hurt. Uh, Mr. Mister was huge, Uh right, on their first record. and
0: um, Their second record. uh,
2: or second record, yeah, yeah. not their the first, but right. a second record. And then when the third record came out, it went downhill. Right. Starship mm-hmm. went downhill. So all of their energy and finances went in trying to, we got to get our big heavy hitters back up there. Mm-hmm. Record sales weren't doing. So us as newcomers, and they're going, well, we're not sure – what to do with them yet, mm-hmm. uh, it got postponed and postponed, and, and then in that myth, the change of presence uh, came about, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that was, that was uh, the end of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Uwe also included an, another little note here you might appreciate. He said in Germany that album, the What If album, uh, was, was just available as a vinyl a record and, it, and he said he purchased it. He said he remembers the date on Friday, December 19th, 1987. He said it was just indelible mark in his brain
1: <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> because wow. he, he
0: loved the album. He, he knew it was such a great album.
1: Oh, that's fantastic! Uve's <laughs> yeah. a big fan. Yeah, really. Oh, that's great. Hey, Bob. Along this time, you know, um, you know, there was a, 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 such a shift from the sound of Sea Wind over to the front, and of course, what if? And a lot of this had to do with the, with just let's just say uh, the digital technology that was coming out, and. Um, you know, my my question is more specific to your performing of and switching and adapting to digital drums, which were a big part of, of both of the albums. And how did you adapt in your playing and how did you, you know, adapt to this trigger uh, based type of playing now, you know?
2: Yeah, it was, you know, it, all of that stuff was so Trendy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from when the syndromes came out mm-hmm. and oh, if you wanted to work in town, you had to have syndromes. Yep. And so um, at that time you had uh, the Simmons drums and they were just electronic sounds and everybody was using that so you kinda go, Okay, we're gonna we're gonna record with these. In hindsight I wish I didn't record with him because it really dates everything. <laughs> if yeah. you just had an acoustic set, it would have been far better. But you kind of went with the the flow of things at the time, and uh, and so it was. You had to get used to that because uh, it didn't interact. But you weren't you weren't looking for the subtleties uh, before. This is kind of I'm pounding it out and uh, taking no prisoners. So mm-hmm. that it, there wasn't a lot of finesse or subtleties. In, in the performing of the drum parts.
3: Gotcha. I so understand. you
2: just you had to deal with that,
3: mm-hmm. you
2: know. Yep. So, I was... Talking syndromes, a uh, uh, a great thing. Do you remember? You guys remember? Uh, well, it's still on, I guess. Um, e. T. Entertainment tonight. Yep. Okay. Well, I, I used to play the the syndromes on that. that doo-doo-doo, yeah. So this is how crazy uh, when we would do that, and when they would have celebrity death. I'd have to tune it down, and it would go da 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 da. Yeah, and it was hard getting through those without laughing. Not that the person died, but uh, just <laughs> it's what you did when you wanted it to work.
1: Yeah. Cool. Hey, listen. One, one, uh, one more correspondent uh, based in Nashville, Tennessee. His name's Scott Sheriff. He was curious, and actually, I, I sort of am. This is a little bit of your CCM um, session work uh, with with two artists. I'm very familiar with uh, Roby Duke, and but he also wants to comment your work with uh, more recently with Tommy Walker. Could you walk us through uh, sort of briefly in, on working with uh, these artists and maybe others too?
2: Yeah, uh, Tommy Walker is a, a worship leader uh, and a great Uh, songwriter, guitar player at Christian Assembly. Uh, It's a church I go to. I've been there for 22 years. Mm -hmm. And um, I came there. Augusto Armario goes to the church, John Pena, Jerry Watts. There's some really gifted musicians uh, going there. And uh, he's an incredible worship leader. And I started at that time after Sea Wind and What If and all of that, I started doing more production stuff Mm -hmm. uh, in the Christian um, side of things. And and I was out on the road with the Billy Graham organization, and it was through going to church that I started producing the church albums, co-producing with uh, Tommy Walker, Mm -hmm. and playing concerts um, around the country with him. And he's just a... a, He's like a younger brother to me, and uh, we our families are so tight. So it's just a great blessing to be able to to do music with him, and 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 right now he's just uh, doing another album in Nashville. So uh, I'm just so proud of him. It's just great.
0: Yeah, neat. Hey, Bob, our our last interview was with the amazing Al Jarreau. And I want to stop and uh, take a break and play a track from your 2009 reunion release titled He Loves You, which, of course, features Al. From our guest today, Bob Wilson on Inside Music Cast.
4: to the laughter of children in love brought together by the good Lord up above they're singing songs and melodies of love to you just listen with all your and you can sing them too. Take love by his hand today, and you will have that love come what may. Love won't pass you by. He's here to stay. Please <laughs> me. Thank you.
1: almost at the end of the, the, our chat here but I do want to speak a little bit about uh, what you're doing with Eric Persing with with some of our uh, um, audience members might know uh, what this company is it's a uh, basically a music software uh, development company that uh, provides a lot of neat things for players Ex- explain to us what what you guys do
2: well we um, we are we provide it used to be a a sample a library base and I was called I met Eric. On a project with Roby Duke, they were friends, and Eric was a sound designer for Sessions at that time. If whoever Larry would want a different sound, and you'd hire Casey Young or Michael Boddicker or mm-hmm. Eric Persing, and he was a a, a big creative force uh, with Roland on the D50, and he decided to start his own company, and we did sample CDs. They were like drum loops and. So. And uh and he did uh bass legends with Marcus and John Patitucci mm-hmm. and Abe. Um and he called me in and said, Hey, I wanna I want you to co produce some drum titles with me. And that started a relationship, uh we go to the same church together, uh that started a relationship of okay, you're going to help produce this, but I'm going to teach you how to edit waveforms and do computer stuff. And I went, what? Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you sure? And uh, after uh, this all came about, uh, after our first daughter, we adopted our first daughter, and I said, I just don't want to be out on the road anymore. I was out with the Billy Graham organization for 14 years. And he decided, he said, I need you full-time at Spectrosonics. And uh, we changed from a a sample CD library to virtual instruments, and there's not a movie or a a record uh, CD project or TV show that doesn't have uh, our stuff in it. And basically, we make these there. They reside inside a a host, Uh a DAW, a sequencer in your computer, and um, you... You play them via a MIDI keyboard, and uh, everybody uses Herbie uses the stuff. Uh, Eric's uh, customized a lot of things for his uh, road tour that he's out on now, and uh, everybody uses the stuff, and it's just such a privilege. It's just great. Again, it's really family-based, and uh, I love that. I love that part of relationships.
0: Sure. Well, hey Bob, we're about to wrap up, but I do have uh, one question that I want to ask from an Inside Music Cast listener, and he he posted this message on Facebook today, and his name's Dave Thrush, and he's from Denver, Colorado. And he asks... I know, Dave. Well, he yes. must. you must, because he's got an interesting question here that, you know, uh, Eddie and I kind of looked at ourselves and we thought, we can't answer this. We don't even know what he's talking about. But he says, he goes, what do you do when the electric power lines snap above your stage? And how long do you wait for the electric company to come and duct tape them back together before you end the concert?
2: <laughs> yes. This is, uh, in fact, this is with Tommy Walker. Okay. We went to the Philippines, which I, I, I just have... Uh, such a deep love and appreciation for the people over there, yeah. and we were we were playing an outreach, and uh, everything is put together with chewing gum, uh, you know, <laughs> foil, and 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 different. Uh, the power will go out. It's not. Will it? It's going to go out <laughs> okay. during the day, okay. and yep. you'll see these guys jump down, take a piece of wire that doesn't match the wire that broke. Oh my God! And and be up there. While it's live, there's no, hey, we got to wait till the power's turned off. I don't know how they do it. But they would be (laughs) wiring this over the bandstand, Uh, wiring this up. The lights went out, the power went down, and you'll see guys on trees, not ladders, on trees (laughs) going out on limbs to repair this wiring so the concert could uh, go on. So that's what Dave's talking about, and that happened to us. (laughs)
1: <laughs> wow. I guess in this business you have to do what you got to do, right?
2: <laughs> That's right. That's right.
1: <laughs> That's great.
2: And in the long run it didn't matter, you know. People <laughs> are enjoying what uh they were listening, to. That's true.
0: You might have had some of that same crew on that Henry Mancini gig. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
3: That's for <laughs> right sure.
0: I, I think I did, yeah. <laughs> well, Bob, it's been right. a real pleasure getting to talk to you and, and hearing your stories and, uh, and talking about SeaWind and all the other projects you've worked on. Uh, my only other question is, being early here in 2014, and Eddie and I were just curious about what other projects or interesting things you might have coming up uh, this year.
2: Well, this is for all the Sea Wind fans. You're going to be pleasantly surprised here in the not-too-distant future. Good. Like I said, I keep writing all the time. Yeah. And uh, so now the format's different. Uh, we'll put it that way. No one does albums anymore, yeah. but they're video songs and that kind of thing. So um, just everybody be looking out. SeaWindJazz.com uh, uh, is our website. Yeah. And, uh and that's what we're working on. Some more fun stuff. Yeah. Be,
0: we'll be sure to stay in touch with us and we'll, we'll contact you to make sure we know what's happening and we can relay it to, uh, the inside music cast listeners too. We'll do it. All right. We'll do it. Well, Bob, thanks so much for spending time with us. We really enjoyed it. Thank and, you. Um, Thank you. Like we'll, like I said, we'll keep in touch and maybe we can do this again sometime.
2: Ah, uh, right. That'd be awesome guys. I really appreciate it, All the work you're doing. And, uh, it just brings, uh, uh, great insight to all of us who just want to keep learning and growing. You got it. Okay, thanks, guys. All
0: right, bye bye, bye bye. Special thanks to Bob Wilson for joining us on this episode of Inside MusicCast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Unaline for their continued support and content development for Inside MusicCast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. You're
4: my